Hi, everybody, and welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neuroscience research podcast. Today is April 29th, 2022, and we're talking to Hujun Lee. Yeah. Did I get that right? Yes, that's correct. Good. <laughs> Hujun is an assistant professor in the Department of Neurobiology at Northwestern University. His lab studies taste, the taste receptors, molecular mechanisms of taste transduction, formation of appropriate connections in the taste pathway, and the central pathways that are responsible for taste-driven behavior. Hi, thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. With us today is Lindsay McPherson, UTSA's own taste specialist and longtime collaborator of Ujun. Hi, Lindsay. Hi, Charlie, good to be here. And me, I'm your host, Charlie Wilson. So Ujun, the taste pathway is unusual in that the receptors are rapidly turning over, uh, but the nerve fibers that carry signals from the receptors to the brain are not. And that means that the taste pathway is continuously facing a problem that most brain pathways face only once during development. That's a cool thing, I think, to study. It is, yes. The fibers have to reestablish their appropriate connections with receptors over and over again. So could you start with just a little summary of why this is necessary and what we know about how it works? Yeah, so because taste information is absolutely necessary for the survival of the animal, it's important to maintain the fidelity of that information so that um, good nutrients such as sweet, which signals presence of carbohydrates, umami, which signals presence of amino acids or proteins, or salty, which signals essential nutrient, essential, sorry, essential salts, um, those would, would provoke appetitive and attractive behavior as opposed to bad things in potential food items such as um, sourness of a ripe, unripe fruit or uh, bitterness of toxins which have to be rejected. So in spite of taste receptor cells having to cycle and live only, they only live about two weeks so they have to cycle and continuously make new taste receptor cells so to why? replace the old ones. Why do they have to do that? Why can't they just live a long time like yeah. other cells? I think <laughs> it's because they're exposed to a lot of harmful things. So uh -huh. toxins might, might uh, touch the taste receptor cells, which might kill them off. Or you could bite on your tongue and lose some taste receptor cells or burn your tongue and lose taste receptor cells. So you would want to maintain your sense of taste in spite of all these harmful injuries. So the turnover injuries. is proactive and anticipation of me biting my tongue or eating something that's gonna burn my taste receptor cells. At least I think that's one of the advantages uh -huh. of turning over. And then, and then the taste receptor cells themselves are highly specific for a particular taste. So that means that if you lost all the taste receptor cells that were salty, you just wouldn't be able to taste salty anymore. And not get the good salts yeah. in our diet. Yes. And so that means the axons that innervate those also have to be completely specific because this is a completely parallel, independent. It's another very odd thing about the pathway is it seems more completely parallel in independent channels that don't crosstalk very much. Absolutely, uh, and, and, and I think at the very base level, you don't get crosstalk between the good things versus the bad things. 
So you don't ever see sweetness and bitterness overlapping within the same pathway. I could see the advantage of that, but I, it's also a, a problem f for this turnover because that means that a fiber that was getting input from some receptor cell, and then that receptor cell dies, and now that fiber, what's it going to do? Yeah. And well, there are plenty of taste receptor cells to go around, uh -huh. and, and hopefully you'll be making enough new taste receptor cells to replace the ones that you have lost, and that would maintain the sense of taste. And this doesn't always happen, so I think there are many diseases where you lose the sense of taste. Um, it could be transient or, or chronic. Or um, maybe a more common story is we know of family members who, um, whose sense of taste has deteriorated and they don't perhaps make as cook as well as before because now everything that, that your grand grandmother makes is, is saltier than it used to be. So with age, we do lose that sense of taste, partially because we don't replenish taste receptor cells as efficiently as before, or there might be other more central processing issues. So what's the mechanism that keeps these pathways from getting confused as the receptors are turning over? So when I first started working with Lindsay, we were interested in this question of how new taste receptor cells that are born would attract the correct fibers to make the, the, the connections uh, correctly. And in order to make the correct connections, we thought that, that um, the taste receptor cells a, or a newborn taste receptor cell would produce signaling molecules that would attract the partner fi fibers from their partners to come and make the connections. And we did this by comparing expression of um, transcripts within bitter taste receptor cells versus those that are made in the sweet taste receptor cells. And we focused then on a signaling molecule or family of signaling molecules called semaphorins because we saw enrichment of SEMA3A in the bitter taste receptor cell versus SEMA7A in, in the sweet taste receptor cell. So in an experiment like that, you're looking at sort of zillions of transcripts and, and searching through them for the ones, or do you already have an idea about what kind of transcript you're looking for? We had some ideas. We didn't know what we were looking for, really. But uh, when we, you know, tracked the, the most highly expressed or differentially expressed genes in the sweet versus the bitter population, we, we knew we were going to look for cell adhesion type molecules or axon guidance molecules, those, those types of things that might actually, you know, do something for the fiber. And so once we looked at the top candidates, the semaphores really popped out. And because there were these different versions of the semaphore in SEMA3A versus semaphore in 7A in the, in the bitter versus the sweet population. That was kind of a, a, a great, uh, you know, happenstance that we saw that and we're like, okay, wouldn't that be cool <laughs> if those two were really doing something to specify the connections between the taste receptor cell and the, and the, and the nerve fiber. And that's when Hojun had really the great idea of manipulating the expression of those semaphorins within different taste populations. And so as soon as we saw those, um, and we, we had, remember, I remember we tested the first knockout of semaphorin 7A 
on our gustometer setup, and neither of us could believe it, but this mouse just was drinking quinine like nobody's business. Like it was just going for it, and we'd never seen that in a mouse ever before, except for you know maybe the total receptor knockout. Um, so we knew we had something in our hands. So as soon as we saw that kind of behavioral phenotype in the mouse, Hojun got onto the idea of, of doing these um, semaphore and swaps and, and misexpression profiles. And, and that, that really led to the confirmation that these were directing the connectivity, not just being permissive signals. And for the students in the audience, I would like to point out that it's important to maintain friendships and interactions with people in other labs because um, we were very fortunate to be um, neighbors with the lab of Tom Jessel and I had many friends, postdocs, in, in that lab. So after seeing semaphorins pop up in our list, we raced to the lab and, and got hold of people who were working with semaphorins and asked them for the mice. So we were able to do the behavior experiments very soon after finding our top candidates. And that really expedited our, our, uh, our research. So in that mouse, bitter tastes like everything. So this is what the, one of the interesting things, because when we first saw semaphorin 3A, and we knew a little, when we looked up, you know, a little bit about its history, and it, it, it's mostly known as the axon guidance repulsive cue. So we thought that potentially that the expression of, of semaphorin 3A would prevent the other taste neurons from attaching on to of the bitter cells and receiving bitter information incorrectly. So that was our initial hypothesis. Um, and we, we thought that that might have still be in the case when we had seen the, um, the, uh, the behavioral deficit where the, this, you know, the, the mice would keep drinking bitter was like, okay, well, maybe they're just, maybe they're just messed up, right? And they just don't receive as much bitter input. But then when we went to look at the actual activity of the ganglion neurons, that is when our idea kind of changed, <laughs> when our hypothesis changed. And because as soon as I went up to, to, to look at these, the activity of the, the ganglion neurons, I was expecting maybe that we would see no bitter uh, responses within the ganglion because we thought we, would, we had lost or, or really reduced our, our, the bitter sensitivity. Quite to the contrary, <laughs> we saw all of these cells responding to bitter in addition to something else. So I was like, I, I, I remember coming right back down downstairs, my, my imaging rig was upstairs, I came right back down to Ho Chi and I'm like, well, it's definitely not a bitter knockout. Like we <laughs> see tons of bitter responses. And then we're scratching our heads and we had to kind of reform our hypothesis um, to make more sense of this. And that's, that's how we eventually identified that they're they're still they're still getting to the bitters, but they're all but then they're reaching out and 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 receiving inputs from the inappropriate cell types. So we would see bitter plus sweet, bitter plus sour, bitter plus umami, and all of these other combinations, of multiple multiply tuned. So uh, anything bitter would taste like a well balanced meal. <laughs> poss possibly, and then we we did some yeah. experiments with this with, with, and trying bitter and and sweet uh, yeah. and getting it. Yeah, it's something one because the because the animals were 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 willing to taste. They weren't repulsed by any of the bitter stuff. And it 
if we were to present mixtures, so bitter sweet mixtures, bitter typically wins out, uh -huh. and the animals were rejected. So there has to be some kind of a deficit in bitter sensation, or enough of a good thing uh -huh. to overtake that. So for the bitter and sweet, you've identified the molecule, at least a molecule that's required in order for the axons to find their appropriate receptor. Yeah. Presumably there are more there are more of those things to be discovered. There are semaphorins Three that more. are enriched in, in <laughs> okay. other taste receptor uh -huh. cells. Although we haven't been following uh -huh. up too much on it, um, we think that there are similar mechanisms working in, in the other systems too. Is it a safe assumption that they'll be similar? There's so many things that aren't similar that's, that's true. between receptor cells. Right, right. And, um, and of course, there are other axon guidance molecules that are enriched in, in these separate populations. So the contributions of these connectivity molecules in, in wiring also has to be explored. So the, the ganglion cells' projections into the brain also stay pretty separate in the next place. That's the NTS? Yes, that's the, yes, the nucleus of the solitary tract. That's correct. So there also cells have a specificity for... Is that true? There's a paper that came out last year um, in, in Cell by Jin et al. where they describe molecular markers for the individual population. So they've at least found that the sour goes through prodynorphin expressing neurons, um, bitter taste goes through somatostatin expressing neurons, and then um, sweet goes through CalB2 expressing neurons. So, and they've been able to fool animals into thinking by stimulating these neurons that they would elicit some kind of taste-dependent behavior. So maybe the same uh, molecules or some similar molecules are controlling it all the way through? I mean, is that so a reasonable... So we, we had the hypothesis that because, sim because the ganglion neurons are pseudo-unipolar neurons, so they have their cell bodies in the ganglia, in the ear, and then they would send out their axon, and the axon splits. One, one arm goes to the tongue, and the other arm goes to the brainstem in the NTS. So, so we thought perhaps if this arm that goes to the tongue requires semaphorin for wiring, that perhaps the brainstem NTS neurons express SEMA3A also, and that's how they establish this connectivity. And although we haven't really followed up on it, we have seen expression of SEMA3A discreetly in the NTS, so perhaps that, that model is still valid. Just haven't tried hard enough to look at it. Interesting thing about the NTS though too is that's like the first place that you can have, or at least at least we think, this is like the first relay station that's not completely just a relay. I mean there's some, mm -hmm. some computations and, and signaling that happens within that nucleus that we don't believe really happens at all or much at all in the in mm -hmm. the ganglion itself. So this the NTS is I think one of the kind of the next steps to figure out where all this taste information is going, and then also where some of this feed forward and feedback um, circuits 
integrate. This NTS is a very a central hub of information where there's um, input from the from the vagal system, so visceral information, and um, some of the internal state information. So there has to be some some integration of all these inf uh, all these different information to regulate taste dependent behavior or ingested behavior and vice versa. So it's still a ways. I mean, you show these uh, like children tasting something sweet for the first time and mm -hmm. reacting to that. It's still a ways from NTS to those reactions. Mm -hmm. What uh, what do you envision? I mean, is it your goal to track down the whole thing from the taste receptor to the motor output? Some of it. I, I think um, we would like to understand how how the the taste system regulates some of the um, autonomic nervous system, the parasympathetic nervous system, to achieve some of these motor output. Um, so at the moment, we're interested in looking at salivation and how how tasting something sour might induce salivation, or gag reflexes, how bitterness might might make you gag, and um, those are more local brainstem circuits, which. I think it's the first step towards yeah. understanding how we do more complex yeah. reactions and behaviors. Yes, because some of those kind of more bas basal level reflex circuits don't require the cortex. You can take the cortex out of, of a mouse and still get it to gape to bitter. Yeah. Um, so those will be probably the first things that we can tackle um, and then it gets more complicated from, from there. <laughs> yeah, but that's quite a bit already. So that the um the reactions are different enough, maybe that the reactions are taste mm. since it like um, salivation yeah. uh, is I mean everything can cause salivation, but salivation is especially connected to sour, right? Yeah. So if you were following the neurons that respond to sour, you might follow them right away into neurons that control salivation. Yeah, that's, that's our hope. <laughs> and I think um, it's an exciting time to be a neuroscientist with all these new tools that have come up in the past, past couple of years. And we are able to um, record neuronal activity at a larger scale with much more ease than before. We're able to manipulate select neurons, um, activate them, inhibit them. And I think that really gives us a lot of power and tools to look at circuits and how circuits are established. So that's those are some of the tools that we're trying to in, um, incorporate in our studies. You mentioned gagging. I mean, I, uh, what causes gagging? What taste could cause gagging? If you put bitter toward the back of your tongue in the mouth, it, it will elicit this thing. It's it's similar to a gag, but we call it a gape reflex. And uh -huh. it's just opening the mouth and kind of like that. <laughs> and that's specific to bitter? It's pretty specific to bitter. You can't you can elicit it in addition to other stimuli that you've paired with something bad. So you can elicit a gag with like a um, conditioned taste or conditioned flavor avoidance, um, aversion. 
Um, so that can elicit a gag, but that's that's more top top down. So, but you you can get one directly without without any you know cortical input just by putting a bitter substance in the back of the tongue. So that's um, to it, what do we know about what causes that response? I mean, that if that's specific, that would be pretty close. That's not a long way away from the neurons you're recording from. Do you think? No. Yeah. So I'm yeah, really interested in. <laughs> we think we think as we're working on more taste reflex in the in the back of the tongue, which in, uh, incorporates a different ganglion than uh, the, the the innervation in the front of the tongue. It's fused. It's this petrosal ganglion that's fused to the the vagal complex, known as petrosal jugular complex, and potentially those are the ones that are more responsible for eliciting these kind of disgust gape type reactions. So it, it may be possible to you know, figure out a way to tease these apart mm-hmm. by comparing these circuits from front of the tongue neurons versus the back of the tongue neurons. So we're definitely interested in doing this. So what's the difference in the receptors between the front and the, I mean, the front of the tongue is, spe- is specific for good things and the back for bad things, or is it? No, not? so we have the receptors for all of them in all the taste buds, or the vast majority of taste buds. There's a slight difference in the proportions of cells, you know, very slight, but they're pretty much all there. The only thing that really is different between the front and the back is salt taste, at least in the, in the mice. There's only salt taste receptors present in the front. There's very few, if any, in the back. Um, but yeah, so the receptors themselves, and the, t- the taste receptor cells are pretty, you know, to, by, by and large, fairly identical between the front and the back. Um, but we think the meaning of activating those receptors is different, depending on where just by virtue that of where it is. is. Yes. Because you're not just sampling it anymore. Right. By the time it hits the circumvallate papillotra uh-huh. way back in the tongue, they're pretty it's, much close to being ingested. Uh-huh. They're just like uh-huh. right before you hit the, the esophagus. Um, so at that point, it's it's you're you have decided that you're gonna swallow this thing. Um, maybe it's a bad idea, and maybe yeah. this is the last chance you have to gape and yeah. spit it out. <laughs> huh? But these are. <laughs> what about? Are there taste receptors on the palate? Yes. And do you know anything about them? I mean, I don't use this kind of language, but I hear people talking about taste and the palate as if the palate is the most sensitive part of the taste system or something. Is that not right? I think it's just the shortcut for saying the, the, there's two olfactory pathways too. So there's the orthonasal, orthonasal and retronasal uh-huh. pathways of olfaction and they're different too, right? So there's the, the retronasal pathway is when the food is in your mouth and you're kind of smelling it from behind your palate where it hits the olfactory epithelium. And that is more like when I, we have a palate, if you're tasting wine or something, you yeah. sense it on your palate. That, that's more the retronasal olfactory system combining with taste. We are so confused about what we smell versus what we taste. For sure. Because they happen at the same time. They're almost <laughs> like, unless you have a really severe case of, uh, uh, of a cold or COVID, potentially your, your olfactory system is wiped out or you've zinked your nose by accident or on purpose, um, taste is extremely limited. And so what we experience as 
colloquial, colloquial, anyway, as taste is flavor, which is a combination of taste plus smell. And but, for the for the taste researchers, our definition of taste is very, very precise. So we typically uh, have been influenced by scientists who used to take out the taste nerve, especially the cord of tympani, and they would hook up an electrode to measure whole nerve activity. So anything that goes through that, anything that elicits activity in this in the cord of tympani nerve, we define as taste. So those would be the five basic tastes. But that eliminates capsaicin, which is why spiciness to us is not a taste. But in your experiments with mice, how do you avoid olfactory stimulation and confusing <laughs> the mouse with, between those? It's a toughie, and it's not pleasant. We, we had to do this for some of our experiments with the bitter taste. And you have to get rid of the olfactory. We, yeah, Ho, Ho Jun did these experiments. He pulled out the olfactory bulbs and... Thanks for calling me out. Yeah, sorry, Hojo, sorry. So, yes, so there there are chemical methods for removing the olfactory epithelium, Uh but they're not as reliable as removing the olfactory bulb. Uh So we've actually had to go in and uh, remove the olfactory bulb because what we were seeing is that when we do behavioral experiments with bitter tastings, the animals sometimes would recognize the bitter taste from the smell without even having to turn around. So they would not even look at the bitter spouse that's presented. So we, we figured out that this is a problem. We can't, we can't determine taste, bitter taste sensitivity if they're already recognizing it without putting their tongue on it. So that's why we resorted to removing the olfactory bulb. And that really helped us understand the taste system better. So why do we have both? I mean, is, uh, was did, did olfactory come later and animals had to get along with just taste at some point, or I do I do think both? that taste is more primeval because um, you have to have contact contact with whatever yeah. that substance is, and like I don't know, we all I, came from well, the ocean. So <laughs> a, a big big difference is that the taste system relies on detectors or these uh, receptor cells that are epithelial derived. So this likely evolved prior to evolution of of neurons, sensory neurons, whereas the olfactory sensory neurons are that, they're neurons. So I like to tell my olfactory researching friends that the taste system uh, came before the olfactory system. It It might have preceded the development of synapses, development of sensory neurons, because that it's that important that you need um, um, primal um, animals needed to detect the presence of nutrients to survive. And it doesn't use synapses. The, the taste receptors somehow can communicate with the nerve fibers without making synapses. That's correct. Most of the taste receptor cells, namely the sweet, umami, and bitter, um, they don't form prototypical synapses, and they're able to communicate by squirting out ATP to the afferent fibers that supposedly are, are close by and still able to maintain that fidelity of information. What do you mean supposedly are close by? <laughs> I mean, they, they don't form synapses, uh-huh. so people have done elec- uh, made electron micrographs 
and they don't make synapses as we recognize them. So it's, it's still a mystery on how they can efficiently signal to, the, to their partner fibers. And um, this is something that is not very common in our, in our body. Um, it's, it's what in, might be present in Merkel cells and other systems where there's this kind of effaptic coupling. So uh, they come in close contact but not make actual synapses. But it is a chemical, it is chemical transmission. It is, it is chemical we transmission. We talked to Tom Finger just a few weeks ago mm. about, the, about the receptors. Yeah. The, uh, the, the reason for synapses, I was told as a student, is to maintain um, private communication. So if we were just to release our transmitter into the extracellular space, who knows who's going to hear right. it? But if there's a nice synapse, then it's just going to to one thing. Which always intrigued me about the taste system because it's is it specific. is it private or is it just public information? Right. Yeah. The, the, once the the taste receptor cell is activated and ATP is secreted. The fiber is just there, and if it has P2X receptors, which we know it does, it will become activated. How does that information become private so that not every fiber in your body gets activated? So I think what's coming more clear lately is this role of type 1 taste receptor cells. And these are glial-like, and they tend to ensheath around they look like taste receptors but they don't have taste receptor uh, they look like taste receptor cells but they don't have taste receptors right. what they do have are atp pups and they will suck up a bunch of atp and if they act likely as, as i think more people are are coming around to, to think of them as that they help protect this contact between so then you create cell. a diffusion barrier, so the ATP can't diffuse just anywhere. It has to do. So that mm -hmm. means that the the, the fibers. I want to say postsynaptic fibers, but they're not postsynaptic. Yeah. They're just well, fibers. <laughs> <laughs> those those fibers must be in some kind of spatial relationship to those type two, type one, type, type one cells, one. and that that we could look at it and see that the diffusion pathways that this cell would be left with. Um, that definitely I is the general idea. I think also with the recent identification of this voltage-gated ATP um, channels called CalHMs, um, they seem to be positioned intracellularly. They have the um, the mitochondria and the ATP pumps, um, and uh, ATP pumps close closely positioned uh -huh. to where the CalHM um, channels are, uh -huh. and and as they pump out ATP, there invariably seems to be some some fibers, afferent fibers, positioned close by to to take up those signals. So there. Although we don't really understand how this organization happens at this point, and the, especially the molecular aspect of it, we are starting to see some glimmers of, of, of hope for understanding this system. Great. That's a, that's a great ending to our story today. So um, thank you very much, Ojin. 
Thank you for having me. For joining us and Lindsay. My pleasure. And uh, by the way, this concludes our podcast series for this semester. Neuroscientist Talk Shop will be taking a break for this summer, but our series will resume again in August. See you then. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thank you.